Okay, so um, this is uh, a pleasure for me to get to introduce um, uh, Dr. Jonathan Chow. Um, he's a man who probably doesn't need any introduction for most of you guys, because uh, we were lucky enough to have him on our faculty for several years. Um, but Dr. Chow initially did his medical education at Albany Medical College, and then joined us at University of Maryland to do his residency in anesthesia before doing his critical care training at George Washington University. Um, as I said, he was here on the faculty doing anesthesia critical care for some time, and recently has gone down to George Washington, uh, where he's again doing anesthesia critical care and then building a transplant program there, as well as running their critical care anesthesia fellowship. Um, Dr. Chow and I have worked together on a couple of projects, including some related to COVID-19, um, and I'm fortunate enough to have him here today to kind of go through um, some of his work and some of the literature looking at antiplatelet therapy in COVID-19. Dr. Chow, I'm very happy to have you here today. It's very good to see you. Um, so go, go ahead and get started whenever you're ready. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Levine, for uh, having me uh, talk to you all again. Uh, it's great to see some uh, familiar names uh, on this Zoom. Um, and uh, today we're going to be talking uh, a little bit about the evidence for and against uh, the use of antiplatelet therapy in COVID-19. And this is a topic which, uh, you know, initially gained traction um, at the uh, beginning of the pandemic, and, and there has been more and more evidence both for um, and against the use of uh, antiplatelet therapy uh, in COVID. So uh, the idea of using antiplatelet therapy really came uh, out of our uh, initial uh, clinical findings and then initial studies, uh, which showed that uh, patients in the ICU had a very high rate of developing uh, venous thromboembolic events. Um, and this was an initial study that uh, came straight out of Wuhan, China, uh, which found that uh, a quarter of their ICU patients ended up developing uh, VTEs uh, during uh, their stay. Um, and uh, this is true in other countries, such as the Netherlands. Um, they also found that uh, these patients who were in the ICU also had a very high rate of VTEs, uh, approaching uh, 60% whereas the uh, rate for patients who were just on the floor was a little bit lower, but still relatively high um, at 10%. And the significance of developing a VTE with COVID-19, as, as we all know, is that once you start getting these uh, thrombi that form, you have a very high complication rate. And uh, this study out of the Netherlands, um, also published early uh, in the pandemic, found that these patients were 5 four times more likely to die if they developed a VTE uh, than if they did not. Out of NYU, um, they, the researchers there uh, looked at uh, autopsy studies, um, and they found that there was an abundance of platelet fibrin thrombi, um, which characterizes thrombosis in patients with COVID-19. And then there was also a significant number of megakaryocytes in patients uh, with COVID-19. And uh, as we all know, that uh, those megakaryocytes are the precursors uh, to fully functional platelets. So the story with uh, antiplatelet therapy really actually starts with anticoagulants. And the initial study to examine uh, this question of whether or not uh, any type of blood thinner should be used um, in uh, patients with COVID-19 uh, initially came out of Mount Sinai uh, in New York City. And these were patients that were admitted to Mount Sinai during the uh, March through May surge uh, up in New York City. 
And they examined uh, over 2,700 patients who were hospitalized, and about a quarter of these patients received uh, therapeutic anticoagulation. And of those 2,700 patients, almost 400 of those patients required uh, some form of mechanical ventilation. And it is that population of mechanically ventilated patients uh, that this study focuses on. And they found that uh, patients who uh, were mechanically ventilated had significantly uh, increased mortality if they were not on a anticoagulant. But if they were placed on a anticoagulant, their in-hospital mortality was only uh, 29%. Um, the duration of anticoagulation was also significantly uh, associated uh, with uh, decreased mortality. So uh, for every day that you are on a anticoagulant, uh, you are 0.8 uh, times uh, less likely uh, to die from COVID-19 than if you were uh, not. So there are several limitations to this uh, initial study. Uh, first, it was a research letter. So they were you know, bound by their word count limitations. So we don't really know um, what type of anticoagulation these patients received, um, whether or not they were on heparin or Lovenox, uh, what PTT goals they were using. Um, so there's really not much granular uh, data um, that we can uh, really work with with this study, but it really set the stage uh, for researchers around the world to start um, uh, performing a randomized controlled trial on therapeutic anticoagulation in COVID-19. And this, is a, uh, this was a combined effort from the uh, REMAP investigators from ACTA4A and the ATTACK investigators. And they actually did uh, two, they did one big uh, trial and then published two separate papers on them. So the first important paper uh, was the use of therapeutic anticoagulation in patients who were not critically ill. So these are patients who uh, were not yet in the ICU, and they found that patients who were therapeutically anticoagulated before they landed in the ICU, they uh, were 1.39 uh, um, times more likely to survive than patients who were not placed on anticoagulation. And very importantly, the rate of major bleeding events was also not, uh, not statistically significant uh, between the groups. So uh, sh it shows that if you intervene early um, in patients who are not yet uh, requiring the ICU, that uh, it can make a difference in outcomes. Now, contrast this to patients who are in the ICU, and they found that if you start your anticoagulation when you already land um, in the unit, that there is really no difference in the uh, uh, number of organ uh, support-free days. Uh, there was also no difference in your probability of survival. So late intervention when the patient has more severe disease uh, tends to uh, not have any um, benefit or harm for anticoagulation. Now, I remember um, back in 2020 when uh, I read the Mount Sinai uh, paper uh, with heparin that uh, I actually started changing my practice and that I started uh, placing all these patients on um, anticoagulation um, who I received uh, in the ICU. Um, but now we have randomized control trial level evidence to show that really it's only beneficial in those patients who uh, are on the floor. 
So this uh, allows us to um, kind of segue into antiplatelet therapy. So maybe if anticoagulation is helpful in non-critically ill patients, maybe giving an antiplatelet agent might have an effect on mortality as well. And the use of aspirin or antiplatelet therapy in ARDS is not a novel idea. So people have been investigating this since before 2020, since before the pandemic. Um, This was a paper that was uh, published by the Mayo Clinic um, in 2011. Um, And they found that the use of antiplatelet agents were associated with the reduction in acute lung injury and ARDS. There was another paper out of Vanderbilt and uh, LSU. Uh, This was done in 2015. Um, And they also found that uh, in patients who um, were at high risk for developing ARDS, that they were less likely to develop ARDS uh, with an antiplatelet agent uh, than without. And then specifically in those uh, who were in sepsis or septic shock, that they also were less likely to develop ARDS um, with an antiplatelet agent uh, on board. Um, Another study, uh, this one was out of the UK, also looked at pre-hospital or in-hospital aspirin use in uh, patients uh, who were at high risk for ARDS. Um, They found that the ICU mortality was significantly reduced but the in-hospital mortality was no different between the groups. Um, And with this uh, conflicting retrospective data, it also sets us up for a randomized control trial. And currently this is the only randomized control trial of aspirin in ARDS. Um, It was uh, published in JAMA in 2016. And these investigators looked at 390 patients who are at high risk for ARDS, Um, And you can see the list of these uh, patients here. Um, But they found that there was absolutely no difference in the probability of survival, whether they got aspirin or placebo. So how does this translate into COVID? Because uh, one key difference uh, with this population in the 2016 JAMA study is that these patients were at high risk for ARDS, but not necessarily high risk for uh, thrombosis. Um, I would uh, really only say that uh, maybe trauma and prolonged sepsis would put you at higher risk for thrombosis, but not necessarily if you aspirate or have pancreatitis or have pneumonia. So um, what happens when we look at the data in uh, COVID patients? So at the beginning of the pandemic, um, we had very little Um, data and research studies that were available. Um, Most of the studies that were coming out were, you know, case reports in the New England Journal, uh, case series uh, out of China um, and Italy, um, and we had no real good data. So um, Dr. Levine and I decided to uh, get together and then uh, we started this uh, Crush COVID uh, registry, which was Uh, a collaborative registry between uh, four health systems. Um, So University of Maryland, GW, uh, we collaborated with investigators at Wake Forest and Northeast Georgia. And we wanted to gather as much data as we could about um, patients uh, who were hospitalized with COVID-19. So uh, in this particular study, um, we uh, retrospectively examined uh, 412 patients who 
uh, required hospitalization, um, and a quarter of these patients received um, aspirin within 24 hours of admission or within seven days prior to admission. And we hypothesized that because aspirin was a COX-1 inhibitor, it's an anti-inflammatory agent, it's an antiplatelet agent that reduces uh, thrombus formation, that um, it would decrease the need for uh, mechanical ventilation, ICU admission, and in-hospital uh, mortality. So taking, look, taking a look at our uh, table one, we can see that uh, these patients are very sick and they have uh, many comorbidities as uh, we all experienced uh, in the BCU. Um, over half of these patients had hypertension, uh, a significant number had diabetes, um, also a significant number uh, had coronary artery disease as well as um, renal disease. In terms of uh, oxygen support at admission, um, these patients who were already on aspirin tended to be admitted more often on room air and uh, standard nasal cannula than being on a more invasive uh, uh, or high flow nasal cannula. Um, and when we examined uh, the rate of receiving other therapeutics, um, we wanted to make sure that these groups were balanced. So um, we compared uh, azithromycin, clomelessin plasma, dexamethasone. We even compared hydroxychloroquine. And when you look at the p-values between the groups, they are uh, no different uh, between the groups. So we put all of our data into a uh, Cox proportional hazards model, um, taking a look at age, uh, demographics, um, as well as uh, hypertension, diabetes, and uh, other comorbidities, and then put them into a model to control for uh, all of these confounding factors. And we were able to find that patients who uh, were already on pre-hospital aspirin or aspirin within 24 hours of admission, that they had a significantly uh, decreased uh, rate of mechanical ventilation, ICU admission, as well as in-hospital mortality. And these are all uh, statistically uh, significant. Um, graphically, this is our Kaplan-Meier uh, survival curve, and uh, aspirin is here in the red, um, and no aspirin is in the blue. And you can see uh, that these two curves uh, start diverging from each other, and they are significant um, at 28 days. So obviously, this um, study uh, was a pilot study. It only had 412 patients. There are uh, a lot of limitations to this study. Um, firstly, it is a retrospective study. So uh, retrospective observational data, our sample size uh, was not uh, very large. Um, and then uh, I think one of the um, most glaring limitations of this study is that we grouped together chronic use of aspirin and acute use of aspirin in the first 24 hours. So um, that really confounds our results because uh, we don't really know if uh, the benefit is from, you know, chronic use for years or if all you need to do is to chew a 325 of aspirin in the emergency department and it will lead to the same findings. So other groups since then have uh, also examined aspirin in some larger studies. Um, this was a study done out of Yale, um, and uh, it was a single center study with a, a little bit larger sample size of 638 patients. Um, they also examined in-hospital mortality. 
and at baseline, uh, their patients were also fairly sick. So they uh, were elderly. Um, a significant portion of them had BMIs over 30. 53% were non-white, 60% with heart disease, and then a third of their patients uh, were in the ICU, and almost uh, 14% were already on a mechanical uh, ventilator. And they found similar uh, outcomes as uh, our group did, and they found specifically that aspirin was associated with a uh, 48% reduction in the hazard of uh, developing in-hospital mortality. There was another study. Uh, This was a very large study that was done out of Stanford and at the VA. Um, And they examined uh, uh, 12,600 COVID positive patients from March to to, uh, September of 2020, looking at 14 and 30 day uh, all cause mortality. Um, And this is uh, kind of a a, a graphical uh, version of uh, how they did their study. Um, So they uh, initially examined about 30,000 patients, um, and then they uh, narrowed it down to a final population of 12,600 patients um, after propensity score matching at a one-to-one ratio. So 6,300 patients in each group, the aspirin and the non-aspirin group. And this being a VA study, their patients are also extremely, uh, have a high number of comorbidities. Uh, they have a mean age of 67, um, a significant portion with uh, hypertension, chronic pulmonary disease, CHF, and diabetes. Um, and then also a, a significant portion, about 45% uh, were uh, minority. And they also found similar results. So Um, They found that patients who were uh, on a home aspirin uh, had significantly reduced 14-day mortality as well as uh, uh, 30-day mortality. And this uh, difference was uh, pretty big. It was uh, a 62% uh, reduction uh, in um, all-cause mortality. But this being a uh, VA study, um, it... uh, you know, it has a lot of strengths because it's a VA study. There's excellent follow-up. All the patients were within uh, the same health system. Um, and this study had a very large uh, sample size of 12,600 patients. Um, and it had an older population uh, with uh, multiple uh, comorbidities. There are also a lot of limitations as well in that the population consisted of 96% male veterans. Um, and uh, you know, it, it, this population is, uh, all male veterans. So, um, you know, it'd be hard to, uh, know if we can confidently generalize this, uh, to other, uh, populations in the world. Um, and then also another significant limitation is that there was no reporting on the rate of other, um, interventions between the groups. So, Uh, They did not report the rate of uh, remdesivir between the groups or dexamethasone between the groups. Um, So maybe patients who received aspirin um, got remdesivir and dexamethasone more often. Um, We don't um, really know. So this leads us to a follow-up study of the CRUSH COVID registry and of the VA study in that we wanted a large sample size of COVID-positive patients who were hospitalized. Um, But we also want a broad population who is elderly, 
who is also uh, extremely uh, sick with lots of comorbidities. And this is why uh, we then pursued to do a larger follow-up study, um, which we uh, titled uh, the catamaran study. Um, So uh, catamaran stands for the COVID-19 analysis to assess the mortality impact of antiplatelet regimens at North American centers. Um, And we retrospectively examined uh, almost 35,000 hospitalized patients who were over 50 years old. Um, And these patients came um, from 90 health systems uh, in the United States, and they were enrolled between February and September of uh, 2020. Here is our uh, figure one. Um, We uh, assessed uh, 17 and a half million patients uh, in the Cerner data set for eligibility. Uh, We excluded those patients um, who were not admitted to the hospital, who did not have COVID-19, and who were under 50 years old. And that brought us down to our selected population of 34,000 patients. Of those, uh, 6,700 patients received antiplatelet therapy. Uh, 27,000 patients did not. Um, And then we attempted to propensity score match uh, in a one-to-two ratio by demographics and comorbidities, Um, And then we got our final sample size of uh, 17,000 patients. So this is our um, table one. Um, You can see here that um, the uh, median age uh, in our study was 72 years old. Um, Medium BMI was about uh, 28. Um, And then there was also uh, quite a significant portion of our patients who were uh, not white. Um, And specifically taking a look at uh, comorbidities, Um, these patients were also uh, uh, had a lot of comorbidities. Uh, The rate of CKD was uh, over 25%, asthma or COPD over 20%, Um, over 75% 75 of our patients had uh, some form of heart disease, uh, 65% uh, with hypertension. So you can see that this is a uh, population who is uh, elderly, as well as a population with a lot of uh, comorbid uh, conditions. As far as antiplatelet therapies, we considered other therapies besides aspirin, although aspirin comprised of uh, almost 84% of the uh, antiplatelet therapies given, um, but uh, 8.2% of these patients were on Plavix, um, 0.3% were on Ticagalor, and then uh, 7.4% of these patients were on dual antiplatelet therapy. Um, And then the median dose of aspirin uh, in our study was uh, 81 uh, milligrams. So let's take a look at some of the uh, thrombotic and hemorrhagic events that we were able to find. Um, So um, after controlling for uh, confounders through propensity score matching, we found that the patients on antiplatelet therapy uh, had a significantly reduced rate of developing pulmonary embolism uh, during their hospital stay, uh, which is not surprising because if you're on an antiplatelet agent, that should uh, decrease that rate. Um, We did find that the uh, rate of uh, DVT was not statistically uh, different uh, between the groups. Uh, And that may be uh, one of the limitations to our study because essentially this was a large database study. So we are uh, reliant on uh, things such as ICD-10 codes uh, to classify these patients. 
The uh, rate of epistaxis was uh, significantly higher in the antiplatelet therapy group, um, but the rate of blood transfusion uh, was actually lower in the antiplatelet therapy group, and that may be secondary to um, uh, secondary to again limitations such as uh, using ICD-10 codes to detect um, hemorrhagic or thrombotic uh, complications. So what about outcomes, which is uh, the most important thing? Um, In-hospital mortality was significantly reduced in patients uh, who were on antiplatelet therapy, um, 18.9% versus 21.5%. And this translates into a 2.6% absolute reduction in mortality or a number needed to treat of 39. So this is quite significant because given the recent surge in Omicron and then given our previous surges with Delta and all the countries that uh, have poor access to vaccines right now, if it's really true that we can use aspirin to help decrease mortality, even if it's a 2.6% reduction in mortality, when you take the global population into account, that translates into a very large number of patients who could potentially benefit uh, from uh, this therapy. So again, um, with any retrospective study, uh, we do have uh, a significant number of uh, limitations. Um, so we used a propensity score matching um, to try and control for confounders, but it can't account for confounders that we don't explicitly uh, put into the model. So perhaps there are uh, other confounders out there that we did not take into account. Also, um, almost 30% of the patients in the non-pre-hospital antiplatelet therapy group ended up receiving in-hospital antiplatelet therapy at some point during their admission. So um, our findings of our effect size may actually be underestimated because of the high rate of crossover from the control group into the intervention group. And then, as I mentioned before, um, this was a database study. We, we didn't actually examine uh, 30,000 uh, patient charts um, by hand. Um, so we were uh, uh, dependent on using ICD-10 codes and that may not be able to capture all cases of thrombotic and hemorrhagic uh, complications, uh, depending on what the coder put into the data set. So again, these uh, two large studies, the VA study and now the catamaran study, that really set us up for a randomized control trial of uh, antiplatelet therapy in COVID-19. And this is exactly what the recovery investigators did. So um, two weeks after we published the initial CRUSH COVID study, um, the recovery trial uh, then added aspirin into their intervention arm. So let's take a look at what they did. And this paper was just published in uh, The Lancet uh, about three weeks ago. And these investigators, they uh, recruited uh, 22,500 patients into this study, um, and then they randomized uh, 14,000 patients uh, to either aspirin or usual care alone. And I will say that ran, doing an RCT of uh, approaching a N of almost 15,000 patients is quite a feat uh, into itself. Um, so you have um, 70 
uh, 300 patients uh, in the aspirin group, 7,500 patients in the, uh, um, in the standard of care group. So it's important to take a look at their uh, table one. So uh, patients who were in the study, uh, they had to be antiplatelet therapy naive uh, in order to be eligible because uh, it may be unethical to uh, randomize someone who is on Plavix at home uh, for their stent and then randomize them to a placebo group. You wouldn't be able to do that in an RCT. Um, so they investigators were limited uh, by that. And that's why they specifically chose patients who were antiplatelet therapy naive, uh, which automatically eliminates the sick patients in the COVID-19 population. And it immediately eliminates the older patients in the uh, COVID-19 population. So mean age of these patients was uh, 59 years. Um, there were only 16% minorities in this study. And um, as we have all seen here in DC and Baltimore, um, minority patients are at significant risk of developing uh, severe uh, illness. Also, um, two thirds of the patients in the study were uh, either not on oxygen or were just on uh, nasal cannula. And only 5% of these patients uh, actually ended up uh, receiving uh, invasive uh, mechanical ventilation. The incidence of comorbidities uh, just by the uh, nature of the study was uh, also um, uh, quite low, um, 20% with diabetes, um, only uh, 10 to 11% with heart disease. Um, compare that with catamaran, where that, where that number was approaching 60 to 70%. Um, you have 19% with chronic lung disease, um, and uh, you know only 1% to 3% with severe liver or kidney uh, injury. Also, um, what is significant is that almost all of these patients uh, were already on steroids, and dexamethasone is uh, now standard of care for the treatment of COVID patients on oxygen. So uh, with 94% of these patients on steroids, the, this trial was really a study examining the use of steroids plus, plus antiplatelet therapy versus steroids alone, um, which is a key uh, difference uh, between uh, this study and the catamaran study. So their primary outcome of this study was 28-day all-cause mortality. Um, secondary outcome was 28-day in-hospital mortality, um, and then also time to hospital discharge, and then progressive to invasive uh, mechanical uh, ventilation, uh, ECMO, and uh, death. So with regard to the primary outcome, which is 28-day uh, uh, all-cause mortality, there was no difference between the um, aspirin plus um, between the aspirin and the usual care groups. Um, you can see the p-value here is 0.35. Um, you have a, a, a risk ratio which crosses uh, one. Um, but the secondary outcomes are uh, significant. Um, so there was a decrease in the length of, or there was a decrease in the time to hospital discharge in the patients who received uh, aspirin eight days versus nine days. It's only one day, um, but in a global pandemic, every day and every hospital day uh, does matter. Um, but 28-day uh, in-hospital survival 
was actually significantly improved in patients who were on aspirin. Um, this was a 73.6% uh, survival in the uh, placebo group uh, versus 74.8% in the aspirin group. And that translates to an absolute um, increase in survival of 1.2%, um, which is uh, similar to our numbers that we found in catamaran, which was approaching 2%. Um, so um, I've read this study many times, and I, I still uh, am a little bit confused as to how the secondary outcome and the primary outcome, they both measure 28-day mortality, but one is in hospital and one is all-cause, how uh, those two um, findings actually conflict with uh, each other. So that's still a little bit um, confusing to uh, myself as, as well as to some uh, other uh, re uh, readers of this uh, manuscript. The authors of the uh, paper also tried to uh, break this down uh, by um, uh, certain subgroups. So with respect to um, age, sex, and ethnicity, um, there was no difference um, in the uh, survival uh, in aspirin versus placebo uh, if you were in um, any one of uh, these groups. So um, we have to examine some of the key differences between um, catamaran and recovery. Well, the first big difference right off the bat is that recovery is a randomized control trial. So that uh, keep in mind is the absolute gold standard. Catamaran, uh, we had a large sample size, but it's retrospective, um, uses observational data and propensity matching. Um, so we have to keep that um, in mind. But there are key differences in terms of the uh, demographics here. Um, so in catamaran, we enrolled patients who were uh, over 50 years old um, in recovery. They specifically enrolled patients who were over 18. Um, this translated into a higher median age of 72 in catamaran versus 59 in recovery. Also in catamaran, um, because uh, in catamaran, the uh, uh, number of minorities was significantly higher, 34% versus 16% in recovery. Um, and then also the number of comorbidities uh, being a study that takes place in North America. Um, our patient population has many more comorbidities um, you know, 76% with heart disease versus 10% um, in recovery. Also, in terms of interventions, um, I think the population in catamaran was much sicker because 31% uh, of those patients uh, required uh, some form of uh, mechanical ventilation at some point, uh, whereas recovery, uh, that number was only 4.9%. Also, there was a significant difference in the uh, rate of steroid administration. Um, in recovery, it was 94%. So really, this was a trial, again, of steroids plus aspirin versus steroids alone, um, whereas in catamaran, the, the rate of uh, steroid use was uh, 50, uh, 53%. So only half of these patients um, received uh, dexamethasone. So that's kind of where we stand here on the use of antiplatelet therapy and aspirin in the in-hospital setting. Um, in the outpatient setting, there was a, a recent uh, study that was uh, published in, I think it was either New England Journal or JAMA, um, which found that if you uh, give, prophylactically give aspirin to uh, 
outpatients with COVID-19, that there is uh, no difference in outcomes. Um, and that's not really surprising either, because if you are not sick enough to go to a hospital, then um, aspirin is probably not going to be uh, beneficial. Um, there are other studies in the pipeline. Um, I know of one study that is currently uh, under review. Um, it's a very large retrospective study utilizing the uh, NIH data set. Um, that's currently under review, so I can't really talk about it. Um, but it, all of these retrospective studies kind of set us up to um, perform a RCT on the population who is more elderly, on uh, patients with a high rate of comorbidities, um, and perhaps in those populations where the pretest pop probability of developing uh, mortality is higher, that we will be able to uh, find these differences uh, in an RCT that the uh, uh, retrospective uh, studies have, um, have all shown. Um, so with that, um, those are um, all the studies that I have to tell you about uh, for and against the use of uh, antiplatelet um, therapy in uh, COVID-19. Um, and if uh, any of you have uh, any questions, I would, uh, I would love to take them.